welcome to the edition podcast. I'm your host, Charlotte Henry. On this show, we talk a lot about the world of broadcast and digital media. They're fascinating, rapidly evolving industries that have huge influence on our day-to-day lives. But let's be honest, however great the next big hit series is, there means something very special about getting the latest copy of a glossy magazine in your hands, packed full of beautiful photos and in-depth features. I see the editions of Vanity Fair and Wired that come through my doors as something of an oasis, away from the noise of other forms of media and social media. And someone who appreciates magazines as much as I do, if not more, is Peter Houston. He's the co-presenter of the Media Voices podcast, involved in all the fantastic projects that that team works on. He also writes the brilliant magazine Diary Substack, a weekly newsletter full of publishing ideas that might just be worth stealing. Peter, thank you for joining the show. Ah, oh, thanks for having me. It's uh, really nice to be on someone else's podcast for a change. I don't get asked enough. Well, first of all, invite Peter onto your show because <laughs> I can tell you this is going to be great fun. And second of all, you've had me on your show. I've had Chris and Esther, your media voices colleagues here. I sort of wanted the hat trick. Yeah, oh, I can see that. I can see why you'd want a complete set. Yeah, exactly. I needed the complete set. I'm a bit of a perfectionist like that. So I'm very, very pleased you're here. Uh, and there's lots to discuss because you, I really want to dig into where you see the world of publishing, uh, particularly as it pertains to magazines. Uh, and also you've been jet setting a lot in the last couple of months. And I wanted to know really what you've learned whilst attending a bunch of the different conferences that you've been to. You gave me a quick rundown before and the places you've been lucky enough to attend include the Magazine Street Conference, a Media 24 meeting, uh, the FIP Congress, which was over in Lisbon in Portugal, and, none, you know, very glamorous as well, aren't you, at Can Lion? I'm just an international man, a magazine mystery, me. Uh, it's been nuts actually that whole thing of not going anywhere for two years and then all of a sudden being in I don't know, four or five countries in 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 basically nine months has been crazy you've been unleashed peter, I have houston, been unleashed. peter houston unleashed uh, i've asked this of a couple of people who've been to events for the first time in a couple of years and i wanted to get your take as well what was it like just being back with your colleagues across the industry in real life again how did you find the whole experience but the, the headline as it was brilliant it was really really welcome mm. um but when you start digging into it, it's exhausting i've you know the idea of talking to more than one person at one time is really hard work you find um, other people tiring, do you, Peter? Eventually, I do. Initially, I'm great, but eventually, it's like, okay. Let's, what are we talking, 15, 20 minutes? How Move on. No, depends on the person, Charlotte. It definitely depends on the person. Um, but yeah, I think people are realizing, actually, and I don't know if you felt the same, the value of in person events yeah. and what we actually miss. We thought we were yeah, replacing definitely. stuff on Zoom and Teams and whatever else, but particularly in an industry like ours where it's all about connections and sort of chat, you know, most of the time the conferences are more important for the things you say in the corridors yeah. as opposed to what's Definitely. in the main sessions. I mean, I think the idea, it's a weird word, I suppose, but the idea of serendipity that you don't know who you're going to be stood next to in a coffee queue or, or whatever, um, that is a really big deal. I mean, to be honest, without you know, if this isn't too much of a shameless plug that's exactly why i started that magazine diaries mm-hmm. newsletter because i wanted to try and just share the serendipity that i experienced and the ideas that come across my desk um and 
the the actual live event, like Magazine Street was a great example. It's just, it's just like a live version of that. It's just people sharing ideas that you go along to a talk and you think, oh, this person's going to speak about this. And you think you've got a really good idea of what you're going to learn. And then it goes in a completely different direction or someone asks a question and it goes off. I think that that kind of, well, serendipity is the best word I've got yeah. for it. I think that's really important. Well, they're called creative industries for a reason, right? Yeah. It has to be space for creativity. So having spoken to lots of different people for varying lengths of time, having gone to these events and, you know, worked in the industry in various ways yourself over the years, what what where are you seeing kind of the world of magazine publishing now? What were the big themes that came out over the last few months as you've been meeting again with colleagues across the industry? I think it's the same theme that's been there for a long time. You know, the next person that says print is dead needs punching. That just needs to stop. Can I just say the edition does not condone violence, but also... Metaphorically being, punched. I do agree that print is a wonderful thing still. It's, you know, print is changing, print's evolving. I used to... White Light Media, I don't know if you know White Light, they're in Edinburgh. Uh, they used to publish an indie magazine called Hot Rum Cow. Um, and there was a guy who worked there as an editor called Simon Lyle. Um, amazingly dry Northern Irish sense of humour. Mm. Simon used to say, print's not dead. It just had to go into a dark room, have a lie down and have a think about what it wants to do with itself. <laughs> I love that. And it, that is so true. That's the point. So I think the more people that actually start to get that, the better. And I think it's starting to come through. I wrote a thing, uh, I mentioned this earlier, I wrote a thing maybe May this year. Um, I think it was Roger Lynch at Condé Nast said that Condé Nast is not a magazine company anymore. And I just, that just really ground my gears. Yes, you were not a happy man. No, I, respo met, <laughs> I responded. Uh, yeah, go on. Well, I responded by, you know, I get it. I get where he's coming from. He's 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 running Condé Nast and I'm not. So he's obviously a very clever man. But there's a little bit of playing to the gallery there. Like the money men like digital, they don't like print. So, you know, the narrative there is we are not a magazine company anymore. And I just find that massively disrespectful to the people that are day in, day out producing the million plus magazines that Condé Nast is selling. And, you know, I talking about Condé Nast, this specific, this specific example, but they're not alone in their glory on this one. No, it's yeah. just everywhere. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Roger Lynch made those comments to Cara uh, Swisher, ironically, who's yeah, part of was, New yeah. Yorker. Uh, you were not impressed. And I think the headline on your piece that you wrote for Media Voices is one of these things is not like the other, which. Because. Was, well, because what With he an was appropriate doing... Sesame Street picture, by the way, which is fantastic. Yeah, there was no no Muppets were harmed in the making of this article. Do we well, give Esther was... picture edit picture editor credit for that? Uh, I, well, she could probably take the blame if that works. Oh, um, but what he was doing was. Com basically comparing print numbers with digital numbers. And we know the two different things. Yeah. You know, how much time do people spend on a web page and how much people's time do people spend on a print magazine? It's a very, very different thing. It doesn't mean that there's no value in, or that the value isn't there, but it's a different value. I have to say, I find it amazing that in May 2022, someone was trying to compare yeah, the print absolutely. and a website. Now, 
both have value in different ways. I love both those things. I, you know, I write for websites. I write, have the pleasure of writing for magazines. I publish my own stuff digitally. Like I, we, but we all know those, those are different things, right? And we all consume them in different ways. Yeah, and I think they're all part of the same thing. You know, we we talk a lot about the mix of six. You know, we talk about that in revenue terms, but that mix of six is also about format. So if you've got an email newsletter, a podcast, a website, a print publication, live events, then you've got a media mix there that works. It brings different people in at different times and you're there when the audience needs you in whatever way they, they, they actually want to interact and engage with you. To just talk about we're only going to do this and this is, you know, and then implication being that the that print in particular isn't valuable. It's just nonsense. It's it's just absolute nonsense. And what what started me on this little rant was when I was at the FIP Congress, James mm. Hughes. Explain on, to my listeners who might not know what the FIP Congress is. So FIP is the International Periodical Publishers Association. Um, they probably would hate me describing them as that because they're trying to see themselves as a kind of media network. You know, but it's, that idea of magazine it's a great media, and the good of magazine world. Absolutely. And international, you know, all sorts of places all over the world. So James, at the beginning of that Congress, stood up and says, you know what, I've pretended and that um, I wasn't a magazine guy for a long time now. And so he basically says, I'm done. You know, I'm James Hughes and I'm, I'm proudly a magazine fan. Um, and that doesn't mean that you're not a digital fan or it doesn't mean, you know, these things, they aren't ever mutually exclusive. But it's that idea, let's stop talking it down. I so agree with that, that this idea that you have to be one thing or the other, you have to be digital first, you have to be only focusing on a niche print periodical or print product. It is just not the way media in 2022 works anymore. It's like me saying I'm going to own, you know, in my small little way, I'm only going to write a newsletter, but not do a podcast or post things on YouTube or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Why? Why would you do that? There's no Uh, reason to restrict yourself. And we know that consumers like to get things from brands they like in lots of different ways. Yeah, and I I think at different times. Mm -hmm. So often, you know, I look at my newsletters first thing in the morning and I listen to a podcast, maybe if I'm commuting or maybe if I'm going for a walk. And then I read the magazine at the weekend or at night when I want to just sit back a bit. And that's great. That mixture is really what develops brand loyalty over you know some uh, loyalty to a specific product and i think brand loyalty we all know is much more relevant and sustainable yeah yeah i mean when I, i've heard interviews actually Cara swish also interviewed anna winter who obviously is not far down the condé nas pecking order from roger lynch and she was she obviously is in her sort of to her core a print magazine person who loves being behind that you know producing the photo shoots and putting out a beautiful print magazine and whatever but it has also had to come to understand the wider world and the necessary to put digital into your the mix of stuff you're putting out so yeah when you kind of pointed out these comments Roger, i was as i say quite surprised that someone as brilliant in the media world as that is still talking that way in 2022 
Yeah, but I, but I, I think it does come from that investment mindset. Mm. You know, shareholder value, or oh, I don't know how Condé Nast is actually set up these days. It's probably not shareholder value. It's probably just family money. But <laughs> um, the no, point no. is, it's, it's, it's all about money, man. It's not about the actual products. Yeah, I th- I mean, I think probably Condé Nast, because of what it is and the things it produces, has managed to weather that storm better. You know, there's no sort of really crummy, like it's still got that sense of that glossy, oh, high quality product. 100%. So I think while they maintain that, most of the other stuff is just kind of ephemeral. But it, I think part of that, maintaining that quality, got to be focusing on your central product. If the magazine goes, the, the digital stuff, doesn't mean as much surely that's the launch pad for it all well i think this the number of stories you hear about print products going exclusively digital and then a couple of years later completely disappearing there's too many of them mm. um i you know i think there's some really really good purely digital products but there's too many that were good print products they couldn't make the economics work um, they go purely digital and then a couple of years later they're gone. And I, I just think that's sad. I, I definitely do. I think there's a way to do print. Well, I think you should at least find a way to keep your print as long as you possibly can because it's in front of people, it's landing on people's desks or in their their hallways. It's making people remember you in a way that it's really hard to make people remember you in digital yeah, uh, for me, it's also we all have enough screen time actually yeah. to be able to consume something that Absolutely. doesn't involve a backlit screen is rather nice. Um, what I also wanted to talk to you about, actually talking about backlit screens, there is obviously a middle ground, I think. Yeah. And it's something, it's not that you can have a kind of periodical, for want of a better word, and you can publish it through something like Apple News Plus, which is a product I've used and actually I'm rather a big fan of. I think there's some great stuff on there. You can get access to all sorts of publications. I think it serves quite an important pers- uh, purpose. Um, how do, do you see that as a help, products like that as a help for the magazine industry? Yeah, because I think it's just part of that mix. It's another part of the mix. I think what become, what's dangerous in all of that is when people rush to a platform without thinking why they're doing it. So they just try and ram the content that they had prepared for the web into Apple Plus. So they try and ram it into, um, I don't know, YouTube videos as, you know, podcasts turned into YouTube videos or whatever it is. I think there's a lot of repurposing goes on that's not particularly, (laughs) I'm actually, how can I turn this into a phrase? Repurposing that's not fit for purpose. Very good. Look at that. I'm going to work on that one. I like that. Um, But that idea of, just because I always remember the economist, uh, they did this chart about all the social platforms they were on. This was probably five, six years ago. And one of the things that the economist was really, really good at was killing off the social platforms or the activity on the social platforms that weren't delivering for them. Uh, whereas you looked at uh, there was a another chart that the Tau Institute did that showed how many social platforms most news publishers were on around about the same time. And it was like 15 different platforms they were on just because when a new one was introduced, they they went on it and they never came off. 
And, and you I, can't possibly put the right enough resources into it to make it worthwhile. No, you absolutely can't. So I think uh, whether it's Apple News or whether it's Tech Talk, mm. um, you know, you've got to figure out why you're doing it. And I would say now, tech, people are going on TikTok because they want a younger audience. Great. People are going on Apple News because maybe they can monetize it and they can reach a huge audience. Great. Can you do both? Probably, if you've got the, the resources. But eventually you have to decide, well, you know what? We're going to focus on getting younger audiences and Apple News maybe isn't the right place for us to be right now or vice versa. Yeah, the thing, the thing about Apple News Plus is probably it's a way of getting some readers who probably wouldn't read you otherwise. Yeah. But it's also not necessarily, you know, you have to be careful, I've discussed this with other people, to not kind of chip away at people who would have paid just for your magazine outright, but then realise it's part of their Apple News Plus subscription or their Apple One bundle, and they don't need to worry about it anymore. I think that's a weird Venn diagram that people don't necessarily see sometimes. You know, that, that idea of, well, there's people who are on this side that will only ever encounter you and read you on mm. Apple News Plus. And there's people over here that will pay you directly because they love you. And then there's this group in the middle. And how do you identify them and how do you separate them out and make them yours? That's a tough one. I think that's that's uh, one of the problems with the platforms is you don't have that direct interaction where you can actually start to win these people over. Without cannibalizing your existing audience or an audience who might have been lured into paying directly, paying you directly anyway. Yeah. So I, th- I think there's a lot of work eventually is going to have to be done there. And so much of that depends on Apple actually starting to share that data or I don't know. I don't know how that's ever going to shake out. That's not really the way they work, is it? Well, there's always been a bit of, you know, the opaqueness. First of all, Apple is a relatively opaque company, particularly when it comes to telling us how it's making money from services and which services are making money. Um, We know that also there's, you know, different deals get done at different time with different publishers over their involvement in both Apple News and Apple News Plus. So there's all sorts of different things that could go on there. And it's only, I use it only as one example of, um, you know, a product that I use that I like as a way of consuming some magazines. Um, You know, you could use maybe Flipboard as another example, all these different things that are kind of, you know, Substack that you and I both use is basically trying to bring back the RSS reader again. Yeah, yeah, so, is, so there's all you know, there's all sorts of different things and going is. on. Readly is doing uh, pretty another well. great example. Um, the, the growth that they've had has been incredible. Yep. Back um, again, so, it's always that mix. It's it's got to work for you as as, as an individual publisher. It, it's not about doing all of them. It's about picking the ones that work for you. And there's definitely a bit of, I, I get the sense from looking at all of this, that there's a bit of a sense of people chasing each other. Oh, <laughs> someone's doing this, so I've got to do it well, as well. Uh, did you read the Press Gazette piece from uh, from the conference that they just had where Ellis Watson was speaking? So his, the headline on that was brilliant. His, his headline was basically publishers, or I think it was publishers, need to just cheer them up, which I would always, always support that. Um, but one of the things that he said that was maybe a little bit more practical advice was that they needed to stop that, this weird kind of follow the leader thing that's going mm. on when no one really knows who's the leader. 
um, the idea yeah. that they're oh they've done that so we need to do it um, he, he his advice really was it just needs to be much more originality um, yeah I, and actually coming back to your the point you started with which was around Condé Nast actually most publishers do not have the resources of Condé Nast to okay. go and create the kind of high quality digital products they have on the back of the high quality print products they have most it's just not possible for most publishers to do what they do and hire the number and caliber yeah. of people that they hire so you have to be a bit more selective of where you put your money and talent yeah, absolutely. You know, that that the conference that I've just been at in Edinburgh Magazine Street was a mm. great example of a lot of people doing really, really interesting things with not a lot of resources. Um, you know, there was the, the headline speakers was the likes of Fiona Hayes from Condé Nast and, or uh, working with Condé Nast and Anna Bassi from The Week Junior. They've got the week, resources. Yeah, I mean, we could do a whole show on The Week Junior. Yeah, it's fascinating. It is. Um, and on her presentation on keeping kids reading into, uh, you know, sort of as they become teenagers and past the age of nine, actually, uh, was fascinating. Yeah. And it kind of had a huge, huge boom during the pandemic. It kind of that. got information to kids and helped parents explain what was going on to kids. And it yeah. just saw a huge, huge boom and huge value. And that seems to be continuing as sort of we get back to normal life. If you compare, so compare Anna, who's working, well, originally by Dennis, but now with Future, with um, some of the other sort of magazine makers that were talking at the conference. Um, a lady called Sandra Lawrence that does a magazine called The Cocktail Lovers Magazine. Mm. And it's just beautiful and it's so specific and so niche and beautifully produced. Uh, another one called We Are Makers, which is all about, you know, artisan crafts. And then there's a weird kind of circle there that the craft of magazine is talking about the craft of furniture making or mm. ceramics or whatever. Um, that's a whole other layer, I think, to to the magazine, I hate the word, but ecosystem. Mm. Uh, I, should, do. I, I should say, in the name of full disclosure, I do contribute to a couple of future-owned publications. So just have that there. Um, but yeah, I wanted to get some more of the themes you picked up from things like Magazine Street and the FIP Congress. And actually, Cairns Line is a slightly different beast. Yeah, that was. If you, if you excuse yeah, that was an, I mean, that was basically ad tech. That was, yeah. I was there talking about ad tech. And it was interesting, but it wasn't, it was very very digital focused and not specific to magazines at all. Although I did talk to uh, people from Hearst there. But, um, you know, I think the big thing, with so the print conversation is becoming interesting. It seems to be about frequency. So less frequency, but um, higher production values. That's something that's been going on for a while. <laughs> you know, I that that down a bit. So maybe you only produce six or eight editions yeah. a year but they're absolutely off the clock beautiful yeah you put more into them in terms of you, you take longer to make them and um you you make them with more love i suppose i don't know care the thing um, that grips me is you're talking about this and i love in theory the idea of something that's be you know beautiful and produced over a six seven eight week deadline um and to be honest it's a kind of elongated version of why I moved from always writing every day to maybe writing a couple yeah. of times a week 
And now, yeah. you know, I'm thinking of maybe tweaking things again, but you know, there is some value in taking a bit of time to produce a longer, what yeah, we would perceive as better crafted thing. But how does that fit with our kind of, and we, you know, you and I can sit here and talk about how much we love magazines, but we're both guilty of wanting a constant flow of information and news, just like my listeners will be, just like lots of people will be. How, how do they those two coexist in the world together? Because you could create and commission a feature that you're going to publish in six weeks' time, but by the time it's published, it's completely out of date. Mm. I mean, the best example of that is delayed gratification, who specifically sets out for the stuff to be out of date because they're, they're that idea of last, last to the news. <laughs> um, I like that. The idea that they're given a full picture of a story. They don't they publish stuff pretty much six months after it happened. Mm-hmm. So they're just now, I think their last issue or the issue coming up, they're just covering Partygate. Oh my goodness. Um, which is you know, that kind of longer term view on it, I think is really fascinating. That seems like a different lifetime ago now. There's already exactly. a TV drama about that. So <laughs> So they're taking the long view on that, and I think I mean, they're an extreme example. Yeah, does, does that have value? Do you think returning to those things has value, or are we actually you actually missing something by taking so long to get to a big story like that? I think it has value. Uh, I think you have a better. You know, you think about. Okay, this is really going to make me. This is going to make me look old. Brilliant. Continue. Well, suppose I already look old, but you know what I mean. So right, my old. listeners can't see you. So you 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 age yourself. So proper magazine, proper magazine journalism, as I would define proper magazine journalism, is if you go back to the good old days of magazines like Esquire um, and even, dare I say, Playboy, where, you know, the interviews that were run in those magazines. That's why you bought Playboy, wasn't it, Peter, for the interviews? <laughs> I never did. Wasn't it wasn't it wasn't allowed in Scotland? It was way too Puritan for that. Um, so magazines like Esquire, um, and there's a website, uh, Esquire Classics, which runs a lot of these old stories. Um, and stories like uh, Frank Sinatra has a cold by Gatelis. It's just insanely reported. The detail on that, and these guys used to spend weeks following celebrities around writing these stories. Now, I'm not advocating for that. I'm not saying that, you know, the economics of magazine publishing needs to be re- remade so that we can go back to those Can I just say, I'm days. very strongly advocating for that. If someone would like to pay <laughs> yeah. me a very large sum of money to follow various celebrities around and report on oh. it. Okay, edit that out then. Yeah, so yeah, I, no, I, I am advocating for that but, as well. Peter will also take a very large check to write absolutely. a deeply reported piece for a magazine. <laughs> so we are absolutely advocating for that. So, but that idea that, um, you know, that magazines were somewhere between news and literature. Mm. Um, so I think that's where that, the kind of delayed gratification approach. And some of these other magazines that, you know, there was one at Mag Street, um, called Dulcify, which talks about food, but it talks about food not as here's how you make something, but that kind of long-form journalism around um, why food is good sort of stuff. Um, I, I, I think I there's a, a place for that. I, I, I totally get this place for that, and I love 
your description just then of somewhere between, uh, you know, news and literature. I think it was a, yeah. I, I, and I love that. And I think the best magazine journalism is that there are some magazine pieces in the same way as good books stand up five, ten years down the line. Those good stories do. Absolutely. They definitely do. So I've just been on holiday in Spain and I took Richard Osman's Thursday Murder Club. If you spoil it for me. I won't because I haven't read it. Because I bought the Atlantic at the airport. Actually, I've read Thursday Murder Club. I haven't read the second one in the series. And And I just spent, I spent the whole holiday, any reading I did, I read the Atlantic. Um, and it was brilliant. There's a 10-page profile of Steve Bannon in it, which is just incredible. Yes, I took a comment. I took both Richard Osman's Thursday Murder Club and a copy of Vanity Fair on holiday with me. Um, I did get through both. I'm not... Maybe yes, you're quite a reader than me. I'm just not sure reading 10 pages on Steve Bannon would relax me on holiday. Well, I don't know how relaxing it was, but if you look at the craft in it, yes. I think that's the point. You know, this, this I can't remember her name, some Sydney senior. Uh, she just won a Pulitzer. Um, and she got access to Steve Bannon and the piece she's written is just amazing. And it's not, it's not this, you know, if I was given access to Steve Bannon, I'd just want to tell him what a dick I thought he was can I say I would like to report on you having access to Steve Bannon there you go I would like to do a 10 page feature on that 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 could be fun but she doesn't do that she's much much more subtle than I could ever be it's brilliant absolutely brilliant and I think that is the joy of really good magazine journalism yeah absolutely and it is it is a art form it is a craft and it's probably one that we will regret losing if you know if we definitely you know it's one of those don't know what you've got to lose gone things if we suddenly realize in five ten years that actually yes people can produce even 1200 1500 word features but actually those 5000 word features where you really get an insight into someone or something is lost i think we will deeply regret that because often even if you're not the person that has read that in-depth article stuff from it feeds down and feeds into yeah, other reporting absolutely. on a subject well it's like that the the roger lynch comment from a cara fisher interview that at the time i hadn't fully read it was just reported yeah. on so it finds information that other people aren't finding i think so that also that sounds like i'm, I'm the, like the world's biggest magazine print magazine advocate and on one level i am but on the other end i'm not a worry about the industry just becoming this kind of farmer's market of independent magazines, because then I don't think people have careers. You know, you talked about working for Future. I think that's great because Future is a company that actually has, you know, a a health plan or a pension plan or, you know what I mean? It actually has employee benefits. The people that are making these beautiful magazines in their own bedrooms or the kitchens you know, God love them, but they're probably never going to employ anyone. Yeah, um, and also there's only a certain, you also have to charge a kind of price that yeah. by definition, you know, discriminates against some of your readership. You know, Absolutely. if people, you have a ticket price of whatever, six, seven, eight, nine pounds for a magazine, you know, quarterlies and 
others can be even more, can't they? Um, yep. Depending on what they are, uh, you know, that's going to count some people out of consuming that. And obviously, digital really doesn't do that. Anyone can access digital in most cases for you know either nothing or pretty good value. So it, it really is a it's a hard balance to strike. But I think those big mainstream magazines, we will if too many of them are either dumbed down or lost altogether. And also the people who, as you say, have careers writing for those things uh, are sort of lost to the industry, maybe write a couple of great books, maybe do some more regular features writing. We we will regret that. We will lose quite a lot. There's also an issue with some of these magazines that they're very design-led. Mm. And this is this will mark me out as a as a editor and journalist as opposed to a creative director or art director you know when <laughs> when we used to when i was working in commercial magazines b2b magazines we would talk about the design departments of the coloring in boys um and as they would talk about oh, this is the, the the typing monkeys so there's a definite rivalry <laughs> there but if if these products become biased in one direction like so many of them are design-led and they're beautiful they really are beautiful um, but you want a substantive but, story as well as yeah the but you need picture. some substance exactly um well and I, I, again that craft maybe is disappearing well let's end on something positive yeah, I want to. Wow, that is not the reaction I expected from you, Peter. But I, I do want to end. I, I'm a very positive person. I just happen to wrap it up in this realistic veneer. Very good for that. That's probably the best approach. But what, what is the point? You've gone to these conferences. You've spoken to all these fantastic, talented people. Yeah. What's something positive to look forward to in the world of of print and magazines and of this deeply kind of feature-led work what what are you feeling positive about i think the enthusiasm for the format is still there mm -hmm. people are still really really passionate i think the fact that it's easier than ever to develop in a niche you know you can't have a podcast you can't have a newsletter you can't have a website you can't have a print magazine and you can grow it internationally because of the digital aspect of it um and I think that is that gives me hope that somewhere along the line there'll be a balance that gets struck between the really beautiful but really small independence and and magazines like delayed gratification. You know, delayed gratification has an international audience and they do okay. They're there's they're more than a one man band, and I want to see more, I want to see you know, that kind of more than a one-man band approach to magazine publishing. I think it's still there. But even if you look at, you know, I, I, I had dinner, I was lucky enough to have dinner with Anna Bassi after Magazine Street. And the passion that she brings to the week junior is absolutely incredible. Um, so that, that, I think, is a positive, that the people that are working in the industry are so passionate. There's not, I, I can be, I can come across as cynical in no, terms of talking about... <laughs> In terms of talking about ad tech and digital publishing and all the rest of it. But when you get right inside the magazine industry, the passion there for the subject matter is just unbelievable. And that's what keeps me showing up. It definitely does. Yeah, I throughout this conversation, I've been thinking of a fantastic Ben Smith column. He wrote one at the New York Times about how during the height of the pandemic in New York, of course, um, 
these kind of niche local publications they were mm. essentially newspapers kind of popped up and became such a thing that people wanted to get their hands on and yes we can kind of laugh at the hipstery brooklyn-y whatever kind of take on that but it's not i think what i got from it is not so simple just to say oh young people don't want print things anymore they just no, look at their phones not. all day i and i just i think your other example of the week view is a brilliant brilliant illustration of that mm. Peter, thank you so much for joining me. Where can oh, people where can people keep up with all your excellent insights and takes and Muppet-based jokes? Twitter is probably the best social platform. So flipping underscore pages. And you're, of course, um, at Media Voices. And... Yeah, I'm Peter at MediaVoices.com. No, it's not .com. Oh, no. What have you done? Peter at Voices.media. And of that, course, really the, and over on the Substack, magazinediaries.substack. And we'll include .com. all of that in the show notes. I'm at Charlotte A. Henry on the Twitter. I hope you're joining me over at Substack at theedition.substack.com. Um, if you're listening to the show there, well, you can listen to it in your favorite podcast player as well. Uh, you can find it in all of them Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast. Just search for the edition or the edition Charlotte Henry, and there's the links to a couple in the Substack newsletter as well. If you're listening to those in those players already, well, you know where to find me, so please do share and uh, leave a rating because it helps other people find the show and be part of the conversation too. Thank you once again to Peter. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.